before we go to God's word, let's spend a moment before God's presence in prayer. In Psalm 61, there's a verse that encourages us in prayer. It says, when my heart is overwhelmed, please lead me to the rock that is higher than I. And one of the reasons we fail to pray is we fail sometimes to feel or realize our vulnerability. And so it's a good thing for us. And I know the events of the last week and things going on in our country that may make us especially feel that. Let us press into prayer in those moments. So I invite you to join with me in prayer. Our great God, we do come to you as the rock that is higher than we are. We come to you, Lord, not only out of a sense of your worthiness and your friendship with us through Christ, but we come to you out of a sense of our frailty, the frailty of life itself, the frailty of our spirits in the face of so many real and even potential losses. And we come thankful that this morning you assure us that underneath the shaky foundations of our own lives, underneath us is the promise of your everlasting arms. You are our strong and mighty Father. On this Memorial Day weekend, we are thankful, O oh God, for those who gave their lives to preserve our freedom. And yet we lament that we continue to live in a world where freedom does not live and flourish without those willing to pay the ultimate price for it, laying down their lives. We come to you, O oh God, lamenting all forms of violence, all forms of violence that are initiated by broken and rebellious image bearers, from wars in countries that never make the news, and young people being conscripted to lay down their lives for causes they do not even understand or know or care about, to the violent and unlawful invasion of Ukraine, and Lord, poignantly to us, the three mass shootings in our own country. We lament these, O oh God. We come before you in brokenness. We lament the racially motivated acts of terror against the African-American community, the Asian-American community, and the unthinkable violence against children and teachers, violently snuffing out 22 lives in Texas. Oh God, we're so exhausted and weary of these reports. We lament that we live in such a nation that has so many great qualities and yet leads the world in shootings like these. We lament living in a place where weapons designed as killing machines are acquired with no checks of any kind into mental health or racial hatred or murderous design. And we don't know what the solutions are, oh God, but we pray you would break us out of this cycle and paradigm, that you would hear us and heal our land, that you would send mercy to the families that will never be the same, and extend your gracious hand to all the teachers and children who now must think about the unthinkable. Oh God, these things ought not to be and we pray you would give wisdom to our leaders and that you would make your people to be salt and light, that we would not lose our savor. We pray for a restoration of life and innocence and sanctity. And, O oh Lord, we pray for your church, your people, that you would enable us to write a new narrative, to be the countercultural force of your Holy Spirit that helps our country break out of the polarization and old paradigms, and to effectively anticipate the day when our swords will be beaten into plowshares, and weapons that kill and destroy will be turned into implements that heal and nourish. Oh Lord, we pray you would help your church to recover its prophetic voice, to scripturally imagine and bring into this world your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. 
where fear is replaced by love and where there is no violence but safety and honor and protection for all. Oh Lord, help your church to lead boldly. Heavenly Father, we pray for mercy over the world in this stage of the pandemic. We pray for healing of relationships wherever they have been strained or broken. We pray for stories of cover-up and abuse within your church. And we pray in this season of sifting and shaking that your name would not be dragged into the mud by people who bear your name. Lord, preserve us as a people and as a church from that. Establish us as a culture that hears the voices of victims and believes those who dare to speak truth to power. Lord, this morning we pray for our ministry partners from the Lighthouse ministering to youth in Oxford. We are so thankful for them. Strengthen that ministry to our homes for orphans in Kenya, to Urban Promise in Wilmington. We pray for Jeff and Kathy Lample in Austria. We pray for all of our partners and voices that live to serve the grace and light and power of Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would touch us and touch this place and that all of the elements of our welcome and ministry and connection would be true touched and alive conduits of connection to Jesus Christ. Lord, you have truly made it simple for us to connect to Jesus and to each other. And we pray that you would powerfully descend upon us and make this a season of true and thorough renewal for us. Oh God, we pray you would bring healing through the New London Counseling Center, that you would bring encouragement through the All Abilities Playground, uh, that you would touch our preschool, which just finished another term, and that you would be the life and animating power and source of all that we do. Oh God, you alone are the healer. You alone are the life source. These are simply our motions, Lord, that are seeking to lift up the light of your name in our hurting world. And so we turn to you now, oh God, and pray that you would speak to us from your word. We do not deserve to be spoken to in such tones of grace as you speak to us. But we receive it. And we pray that you would light afresh and anew upon us. In Jesus' name we pray. And together God's people said, amen. Amen. Good morning. It is a joy once again to come and open up God's word. I just want to tell you, 34 years ago and one day, Liz and I got married. So we're celebrating 34 years and a day. She's seated back there with some dear friends who are here to help us celebrate uh, this day. Uh, and um, this Saturday, so it'll be like 34 years in a week that I will be walking down that aisle a second time, but this time walking with my daughter on my arm. Isn't that amazing? And I just think of like God's faithfulness uh, to us in all of that. And it just prompted me in the midst of this Love Revolution series to preach on a text that I will tell you should not usually be preached at weddings, especially, although we associate it with weddings, because it was actually revealed to be applied to a church. It's not inappropriate to apply to weddings, <laughs> but it was especially revealed to a, a church to bring us back to what God ultimately cares about, and it's 1 Corinthians 13. I'd like us to read it together, and we're going to look out uh, this passage of Scripture. I think it's so wonderful that Paul said that he was not a person of eloquence, 
And then he writes this chapter. Uh, Because this chapter on love is, if you had a literature professor in college, if you want to sound smart and impress someone, you can say, uh, 1 Corinthians 13 is an an encomium. Um, I had to even check what that word meant. But you know what an encomium is? It's when a uh, writer takes a topic and seeks to write in in maybe uh, poetic form uh, phrases that praise something. So you could, you could write something in praise of baseball or uh, pizza or uh, sitting at the beach and you pile up these, uh, these wonderful superlatives to say, this is the best. And this is what 1 Corinthians 13 is. And the words that introduce it actually at the end of chapter 12 when Paul is writing to a very divided church that had lost its way, that was pitting... Uh, person against person and gifting against gifting. And he says, I will show you a more excellent way. Uh, and then he pens these words, which, which are at least in contest, they would be nominated for some of the most eloquent words that have ever, ever been written. And we're gonna look at what Paul does here. He first of all points out the supremacy of love. Then he defines the characteristics of love. And then he speaks of the permanence of this kind of love. So the supremacy, uh, the characteristics, and the permanence. And uh, reading this text should have a warning label attached to it. (laughs) Because if you read this text, it may likely lead you to the conclusion that you have maybe rarely, never, (laughs) faintly ever loved another person the way this passage is calling us to. (laughs) Uh, and so uh, it's gonna require us to land ourselves in Jesus this morning too. But let's uh, hear now the word of God as I begin, 1 Corinthians 13, 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So we're gonna look, love is supreme over all other things. We looked last week how Jesus put all his eggs in one basket and said that by this all we'll know that you are my disciples, that you have been understudies of me. How will you know if somebody's an understudy of Jesus? they will become a more loving person demonstrably. Uh, This is, uh, again, love is to the church what chicken is to Chick-fil-A, what coffee is to Starbucks. It is unthinkable. It is the criterion that Jesus allows the world to use to judge us. 
And we've lived in a season where weakness and love has been so exposed. I, I so wish the narrative of the last three years had been this, that people outside could say, well, when racial tensions increase and when there are all kinds of debates on how to solve it and there's all kinds of embitterment and maybe entrenched hostility, the one place I've seen diversity flourish and outreach across ethnic and racial lines extend with perfection is the church. But we haven't heard that. Or I would have loved it if the narrative, the narrative that should have and could have been was to say, in this pandemic where epidemiologists are puzzled and baffled as to the best methods of containment and where science is being observed in real time and people in our society are tempted to get sideways and crossways from each other based on things that they are not experts in, at least there's one place on earth, the church, where no matter what your position or confusion or, or wherever you stake your ground is, there have been no breaking of any bonds in the church. But that has not been our narrative. And here's what I want you to see in these first three verses. Paul says it is possible for faithful, scripturally based, sincere, and gifted believers in Christ to be functioning and even sacrificing and committedly serving without leading in love. Uh, you'll know in this passage, he speaks of um, real gifts being displayed, um, and he says that, but they are being exercised in a way that means they mean not just diminishment, but that they are worth nothing. Um, if you think of the number billion, and you can just put that number up, just so you think of billion. I know you'd like to think it's your bank account, but you think a, a billion is a one followed by how many zeros? Nine. So when you put that up, um, what's the most important number in that whole sequence? The one. If you remove the one, what do you have? This is what the point of 1 Corinthians 13, one through three is. Is that you can have so much going, so many gifts, so many labors from real Christians. He doesn't say these are false teachers. He doesn't say that these are insincere people. He doesn't say that they are not grounded, but he says that what is happening is they're exercising their gifts apart from graces. And so he begins by speaking of, of a gift that was supernaturally dividing the church then, as it often does now, the gift of, of supernatural eloquence in prayer, the gift of tongues, speaking in the tongues, whether of men or of angels. Um, I think tongues is a, a gift designed to be, create new vocabulary in the worship and love of God. Um, I love how Sandy Miller, a bishop in uh, the Anglican church said that, uh, he always struggled to speak to God about how much he loved them. And one day in an Alpha course, he was struck with an ability to utter words that were beyond interpretation. He didn't even know what he was saying, but he was speaking words kind of like a, you know, I was classically trained as a trumpet player where all the notes were on the page. And then I encountered jazz where somebody's just like, you know, playing off of the chord chart and whatever. And this is in a sense what happened. All of a sudden he was able to speak these words. And it says, you could actually 
Paul says this, I don't think it's theoretical, I think it was happening in Corinth. You could have this gift of tongues functioning and you actually use it as leverage to divide you from other people. And he says, if you have that gift, which is meant, he says in Corinthians, to edify the spirit, you could have that gift and not exercise it in love. And he says, therefore, not you're diminished, but he says you're worth nothing. <laughs> his, his next illustration in, in, is, he says that you are a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. People think that this is likely an image lifted from the pagan worship where they would offer sacrifices. And then if some of us are old enough to remember the gong show, you guys remember that? <laughs> It's not a pretty instrument, right? And it was, it was when someone was on this talent show, uh, if they did not actually have talent and their friends were not kind enough to tell them they really didn't have the talent, then they would go and they were like, gone, right? And it was not a musical moment. It, it, it was a, an ending moment. And he's saying that when we exercise, when real Christians exercise real gifts, but do it outside of the grace of love. It is not something, it is nothing. It is actually received as pagan worship. And then he moves on from there and he says that you can have the gift of prophecy. You can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. In other words, you can be an impressive, Bible-toting, scripturally informed Christian who can untie all kinds of knots and do it accurately. You, you can speak words of comfort, encouragement, and strengthening, but you can do it without love. Uh, he's gonna say you can deliver, give everything you have to the poor. That's, I don't think there's anybody in this room probably that has done that. There are people around the world in church history that have done that. I think there are people probably in Paul's day that he knew that had done that, part of the band of the disciples. He says, but you could do that. And, and not have love, and he says that you are nothing. And so he's talking about real possibilities. Uh, you, you can have faith that inspires others to go over hurdles that are blocking the kingdom of God from advancing on the earth and have leadership gifts that truly advance. And what he's saying here is that there is a frightening possibility of exercising gifts and talents apart from the graces of the Spirit of God. Real Christians who are sincere, they, that we can function that way, and it's a danger that can happen to any of us. It's very, very possible to love preaching as preaching and not love people that you are preaching to. It's very possible to love teaching the Bible but not love your class. It's very possible to love singing worship songs, but not loving the team that you're on and not loving the people who you're called to serve and join with you. And, and Paul says, when that happens, it is tragic. And so he's saying there is something that is supreme. The supreme, uh, the supreme need in God's eyes is people who receive the graces of the Spirit of God for whatever their abilities are. I think we so easily invert this that we think what's really needed is great, great abilities when what really needed is great likeness to Jesus Christ. Uh, in 2 Peter chapter one is one of my favorite scriptural chapters and it, it's Peter saying, add to your faith knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control kindness and to kindness brotherly love and he moves on through that list of all of these virtues. Check it out. Peter's second letter, first chapter, 
And, and then he writes this verse in verse eight. He says, if all of these qualities, this faith and knowledge and love and brotherly kindness, he says, if all of these qualities are yours and they are on the increase, these qualities, whatever your gifts are, he doesn't even mention gifts. He says, they will make you neither ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of Christ. The most strategic, important thing in our world are Christians who embody what it means to look like Jesus. We can be on all kinds of campaigns. I have seen them. I've been around them enough in church that I wanted to virtually de declare a, a, a break from, from that kind of institution and church. We can pursue so many avenues that are even biblically defensible and right, but to do it apart from Christian grace of love. And it's, it, it is a danger, and Paul here is saying, if you do that, it is worth nothing. This is, this is my wisdom from Liz this morning as we were driving here on the commute. One thing, when we stop commuting, you may not get these little nuggets from Liz. Because <laughs> this is the best thing I'm gonna say in this sermon, undoubtedly. This is like, you know what, she says, there's not a single command in the Bible for us to figure out what our gifts are. And yet we're often so concerned. What's my gift? What's my place? What's my role? What is God calling me to do? I said, wow, that's profound. But she says, but there is so many places that call us to do what we do with love, that call us just, just love. And so if you, if you wondered, well, what am I supposed to do? Be a loving person. Take the action of love. See where, where love has a role and a possibility. That's the supreme thing. And that is the burden of 1 Corinthians 13. The supremacy of love in what we are doing. But then, to not let us off the hook as to what love is, the characteristics of love are given in verses four through seven. I'm convinced that, you know, if you, if you ask me on, on most days, am I a loving person? If I'm not in the middle of some kind of conflict or something, I'll say, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, like Garrison Keillor's, you know, Wobegon, I'm above average. Like all of my children are above average. Everybody thinks their kids are above average. We all score ourselves high in love, right? We all think, yeah, I'm, I'm a pretty loving person. But I will say, if you ask me on most days, are you patient? You will get a much more honest answer. <laughs> and that is why Paul takes in verses four through seven, Usually my sermons are three-point sermons, but four through seven is a 15-point sermon describing love. There are 15 points to this sermon. But, and, and the first one is, is, a, is, is a wrecker because it's like, we say, yeah, I'm loving. But says, yeah, but are you patient? Are you patient? Um, I think of that verse in, in Genesis 29, 20, and I'm so glad it wasn't true of me and Liz. We, we met and we were... Uh, she, we were talking about marriage and engaged within a few months and we were married within a year and a half. So that was a good deal, great deal for me. Think about Jacob and Rachel though. It says in Genesis 29, 20, Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Now that's love is patient. <laughs> that was a patient love. And here's the thing. Paul knows that when you really love someone, um, you have no timetable. When you really love someone, you have no agenda for them that you were controlling. Control and love are very different things. Some parents are very good at controlling. 
but not very good at loving. Some, some of your parents were good at controlling, but not very good at loving. And you're still bearing some of those wounds. Control, again, is based on fear. Love is based on trust. Um, when you give up, when, when you love someone, you give up control. When you love someone, you become flattened to the floor as a servant. When you love, you're not the boss of someone. You're not the boss of your children, even your teenagers. If you love them, you sign up as a servant. <laughs> you're, you're not the judge of someone when you love someone. You know, judges hear the case and they announce a verdict. When, when you love someone, that person is not finished. That's why I think Christ forbid us from judging because that is declaring a final sentence on someone when we're supposed to do what love does. Love believes the best possibility coming for this person. I don't think when it says love believes, it means that we're naive and just always put blinders on about a person, but it means that we will not stop believing the version of that person can emerge through faith in Christ. This is all a fruit of patience because when you love someone, you're not the boss, you're not the judge. That person is never finished. It's not our job, it's not your job to change anybody on the planet. Did you know that? I'm so grateful to know that. I forget that. It's not my job to change anybody. It's not my job to bring influence to the church. It's not my job to do those things. Not my job. It's his job. Which my job is to love and work patiently Maybe remind God in prayer that it is his job, not mine, because God wants us to love people no matter what. And so that is why the Bible says love is the greatest. And so one of the steps today in loving maybe one of the difficult people in your life, or I'd say this text is especially talking to us about people in the church family, is to resign as the boss, as the judge, as the change maker in their lives. Because love achieves more as a force than any kind of control. He next says love is kind. Kindness is practical kindness. It's a ministry of support, sustenance. And he actually uses a word here that is kind of, it only occurs here in the Holy New Testament, this word for kindness. And it is, it is taking the verb of actively showing kindness. And so kindness is different than patience, which might be hand off. Kindness moves towards someone and is actually actively doing uh, actively doing kind things and kind works. Then he says love is not easily angered. It means that love is not touchy. You cannot be a loving person and be touchy. You cannot be a loving person and be inapproachable. A loving person is easy to approach, easy to present a concern to, easy. There are no walking on eggshells. You know, in a church that is loving, there are no landmines. I, I believe that one of my tasks as a pastor in a church is if there are landmines, I don't care what they may be. They could be some of the political landmines, the epidemiology landmines, whatever they've been. I know they have been those. You know what a pastor's job is in, in bringing a climate of love in a church? is if there are landmines and you locate them, you need to dance on them, all of them. Yeah, that's our job. And, and as I do that, then I invite you to join me and say, there will be no landmines at CLC. <laughs> there can't be landmines at CLC because we're following the one who gave himself to remove every obstacle and landmine. So there's no topics that we can't talk about. There's no hard positions or distinctions or differences that we can't navigate because we serve a God who has already navigated all of these things that would keep us at infinite distance from him. 
And he has, he has blown those up to smithereens to bring us into relationship with him. And so how can we let these smaller things that separate human people, how can we let them exist? And so we have the hard conversations because nobody's gonna bluster, nobody's easily angered, nobody's gonna be defensive without us reminding them to say, that's not love. <laughs> and so when you, when you read these, no record of wrongs, you know, it's so easy to stuff, you know, to, to get not hysterical, they say, but to get historical and past hurts and wounds that have, and then put them in a, in a, in a you know what a gunny sack is, you know, the, and, and then when, when you're in the battle and argument, you bring those things out and you launch them as grenades. This passage says, that's not love. Love doesn't do that. Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Love, love, resolves it. And if the issue keeps coming back, then love approaches the person and says, this issue is still recycling for me because I don't think we had the hard conversation. <laughs> and we need to have that conversation because I can't get over it. That's what love does. Love doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. Even, even when we don't like someone or they have hurt us and we see wrongdoing, there's no delight in evil. There's no passing on wrongdoing in gossip. You know what gossip is? Gossip is a delighting in wrongdoing, but gossip is not so much what you say as it is who you say it to. If you approach the person, if you're in a peer relationship, I'm not talking power relationship, so that when you assume a role uh, that has some authority and power, um, then you no longer have the same protection that everybody else has. That's a whole other topic. But when you're in a power relationship, then, then yeah, you, you, there sometimes have to be steps and places. Sometimes, I will tell you this, I never feel like I'm in a power relationship as a pastor because <laughs> it doesn't feel very powerful to me. <laughs> it feels weak sometimes. But if you have an issue with me and you can't really talk to me, you know what? That's why you have elders. <laughs> and, and here's your loophole. You, you go and you can, you can talk to an elder and say like, hey, here's something I'm experiencing on the other side of Bob. And I know you're on his team and I just can't bring myself to go to him because he's so intimidating. Um, I hope not. <laughs> but, and, and, and also because I might be wrong and then I, I, you know, I'm afraid he'll say bad things about me at my funeral. And I wouldn't want him to do that. Or if my teenagers go to him and I've had a conflict with him, I'm afraid he'll take the side of my teenager against me, which is probably true. I'm always on the side of teens. Teenagers, I'm on your side. I've raised my kids. They're no longer teens, so I'll always take your side. But you say, I don't want to, I, I just, it's this, it's this relationship. He's the guy who preaches and like, I don't want to get on the wrong side of him. You know, there's a loophole there because those who serve in that capacity serve as part of a team. So you can go to your elders, you can talk about me, but you know what, you can't do that with other people who are your peers. Does that make sense? With your peers, you either go to God and just pray for them and, and realize you're not the boss, you're not the judge, you're not the change agent, or you go to them. Anything else starts getting on that shaky ground of gossip. You can maybe go to someone else and say, I need your counsel about someone. I can't tell you who it is, but I, need, I want to respond and love them in a Jesus-shaped way. And, and, and so this list, you know, is this a little challenging? You know, most of us, when we think that I am, I'm a, 
more than average loving person, I'm better than the average person, but if you read this list and replace the word love, which he's personifying love in this praise to how great love is, if you put your name in place of love, it's very convicting, isn't it? <laughs> I would suggest if you're, if you're married or maybe seek out a close friend and say, I just wanna read you verses using my name and just say, Bob is patient, Bob is kind, Bob is not easily angered, <laughs> he is, keeps no, Bob keeps no record of wrong. It, the, wow, that, He's really, if you're gonna do that with honesty, it, it's gonna lead you to realize how much you need Jesus. And, and I want you to know, it doesn't say love doesn't murder, you know, love doesn't rob banks. Uh, it's not that, it's these, it's these more subtle root attitudes that feed all of those. He's, he's wow, the standards are so high. Um, and, and so he's personifying love. He's talking about love the way you would talk about a person. And you know why he's doing that? Because Paul really is thinking about a person. There is one person who walked this planet who never had to Monday morning quarterback a single conversation. You know what I'm talking about? I, I've never had a conversation that, I mean, if, if I didn't have some degree of, a, of I could have improved it. I either lack imagination or I lack memory. <laughs> we, can, we can improve every, every conversation, every encounter, especially the difficult ones. We can always improve, but do you know who never had to do that? Jesus. I, I, I love what even G.K. Chesterton said this. He said, one of the reasons I believe in Jesus is when I read the gospels and I read what Jesus said, no one has yet come up with the word that Jesus ought to have said. And, and there's nobody else like that. I mean, I, think, I would even amend that. Nobody can come up with, with, to the word that Jesus ought to have said to be more loving. He is just a pure fount of raising up people's dignity or, or pushing them to the place where they will find out how merciful and great he is. The perfect one. He is the only one, though. He is the only one who, who fills that out. Uh, and, and so Paul is thinking of Jesus. He's writing this to say, I want to pull you all into the arms of the one who, if you allow him to be your disciple, and remember what we said discipleship is. It's asking Jesus to be uh, the teacher of our lives, to live right at our elbow, and to be making constant revisions in how we live, act, and think. That's what it means to be a disciple. It doesn't mean you know a lot or you've done a lot of church stuff or whatever. It just means that right now, the most important thing in your life is that Jesus be teaching you in all your relationships and conversations to be like him. And, and that is, is, is such a gift, and that is why Paul concludes this chapter <laughs> Uh, by saying that love is the greatest. You know how he, how he concludes it is he, he says that one day what is true of Jesus will be transplanted so that it's true of us. He says that now we look in a mirror darkly. But he says one day we will gaze upon him face to face. First uh, John chapter three says that when we see Jesus, the power of actually encountering him for real is such a power that it will melt away everything in our life that is not according to love. The, the, the power of Jesus' love is so great that when you experience him, you're transformed. 
you know, we are really transformed not by thinking our way more accurately into an understanding of who God is. We sometimes think that way. Uh, and, and I think it's such a, a disjoinder to the Bible. We cannot think our way into Christ likeness. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, he says, we all with unveiled faces gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. This is part of what happens in worship. It's part of what happens when we pray. It's part of what happens when we gaze upon Jesus spiritually. He says, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. You know what glory is? Glory in your life is simply this. It is changing what you are by nature self-pitying, critical spirit, the tape that's playing in our minds, uh, overwhelmed by the amount of things on our plate, whatever it takes. Those are all things that come to us by nature, our self-talk. The glory of God is when he interrupts that, revises it, and transforms us into who we ultimately are and who we are becoming and who we will be. That's the, the glory of God is the difference between what you are left to yourself, what I am left to myself, and what I become when I allow the intervention of Jesus. And it says that on the, on the last day, there will be a deposit so intense, so powerful, so permanent that it will displace, oh, I thank God that I had this hope that it will displace everything that is alien to love and to the fullness of Christ in my life. And you know that that can be yours too, not by striving, not by working, but simply by laying down even all of your efforts and conceits and saying, Lord Jesus, have mercy upon me, a sinner. The most simple of prayer opens the gateway into a certain transformation. And so he ends this saying there is a development, he says, um, and, and he says there is the season where of shadows and of partial knowledge, but he says when the perfect comes, all of that knowledge is done away with. This is not talking about anything short than the second coming and glorious, personal, visible, sudden and glorious return of Jesus uh, or our own transfigurement in our death. And it says that when we see him, we will be like him. That's the power of Jesus' love. It enters in to our unholiness. And like we said, rather understanding that God who cannot be in the presence of sin, what we need to understand is that our sin cannot stand in the presence of God. <laughs> That's his power. If God was so holy, he couldn't stand being in the presence of sin, then I wouldn't get to have any fellowship with him all week long. <laughs> that wouldn't be good news for me. But what's good news to me is that my sin cannot stand, cannot retain its grasp on me, cannot continue to control and warp my life, cannot give me puny little self-pitying narratives about other people. It cannot do that when I allow the presence of God to come into my life. That's the revolution of love. It's why it comes, not, not by law. Law leads us to understand our need for this love. <laughs> law sometimes gives us a picture of our preferable future, but it says that this is the force uh, of, of love unleashed. And he says that you know what happens after we're all transformed in this way? We no longer need faith because we've received it. We no longer need hope because um, hope is now our present reality. <laughs> But it says that we will have all eternity to live in a world where we act this out in all of our relationships for the rest of our lives. 
I want to get in on that. <laughs> Some of you know my, my favorite way of understanding the gospel is, is a, 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 and I love to share this with non-Christians when they say like, you know, where do you work? What do you do? I, I uh, as I go to lunch at Aurora Cafe or whatever, sometimes I'm alone just grabbing a slice of pizza and I say, I, I just moved here. I got a new job. And they say, where, where do you work? And I say, well, I work for the largest, oldest institution ever created. And we are changing the entire globe. Really? And wow, sounds really important. I said, no, actually, you can, you can come into it just like I have. There are just three things you need to know. Just three things. And I love this. And it comes from Ray Ortland. He says, first thing, I am a complete idiot. Usually people are like, okay, you sound like a complete idiot right now, all right? Um, um, and, and then the second thing I tell them is I say, I'm a complete idiot. The second thing you need to know is my future is incredibly bright. Well, they say those two things don't usually go together. Complete idiots don't usually have incredibly bright futures. And then I say, and the third thing you need to know is that absolutely anybody can get in on this. And they say, I'd like to hear more. And I say, well, I'd like to tell you more. <laughs> because all of that is about Jesus. So you, can you embrace those three? You know, so just say it with me. I am a complete idiot. I am a complete idiot. I, I did this one time and people said, Bob is a complete idiot. No, no, no. <laughs> I want you to say, I am a complete idiot. <laughs> and then you say, my future is incredibly bright. Why, why is that? <laughs> Because love personified made up the distance to all of this. I, I don't want you to leave saying, wow, there was a 15-point description of love, and I'm on the floor for all of those. I have so blown it. That's not the point of the Bible. But it's that you pick yourself up off the floor, or rather you let God pick you up, and you say, you've gone the distance. And he says, anyone can get in on this. And what is the this it's not only the transformation of your life, but you know, sometimes people say like they have left a, a wrecking ball path of ruined relationships. That's true of a person not functioning out of love, but you know what should be true for a Christian? They leave a path of healed relationships, encouraged relationships, relationships that are more honest and yet more gracious at the same time. That's that's the vision of this passage. The vision of this passage is the renewal that is released in our lives is what we're agents to unleash in the world. This is why I call it love revolution. This is why Jesus said that he was staking everything on love disclosed in the life of his, his disciples. Because this is, this is the most exciting thing that is happening on our planet right now. You know, we sometimes look at the state of Christianity in our own country. I want you to know that there are more people becoming Christians today than at any other time in our world. There are countries experiencing the discipleship of Jesus Christ. And this narrative is not only changing destinies, it is changing locations, it is changing cultures. One person, one heart, one life that says, Lord Jesus, I want you to remake me. I want you to remake me so that I am living out the greatest narrative that could ever be lived. If you've never prayed that prayer ever, I invite you to pray that prayer. I'm a complete idiot, Lord, but through Jesus, my future can be bright. I receive it, and I get in on it, and I want to be part of bringing others in on it. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for the glory of this chapter. There is no other faith, no other philosophy. There is no other person 
who so lived a life of love and made it so that we can get in on it and come into it. Lord, as we sing our closing song of worship, fuel in us a, a sweet and specific profile of what it would look for, like for us to live this kind of love out. And we pray that, Lord, that new narrative of love to be lived out for your namesake. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand and worship with us?
beating. God so loved the world. Amen. Oh, wow. Thank you all. That is great news. I, I feel the joy here. This is a pivotal moment where we remember the God we've experienced here. We're taking out in mission with us. He isn't just real here. He's real with us, and he promises to go with us out into this broken world. So lift up your hearts, he promises, and, and he wants to place the pledge of his spirit and presence upon you. So lift up your hearts to him and receive this. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship and communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. God so loved